Hello and welcome everyone. I'm your host Petri, and this show helps you to build your company. In this episode, I talk with entrepreneur Bensi Hayam. I've been following Bensi for many years, and I've been really impressed by their approach and way they have built their content marketing business, Grow and Convert. They walk the talk, and it really shows with impressive results. Pensy, what have you been doing lately? What are you been excited lately? I'm excited about our business overall. I think, as most people know, COVID hit in, in March and the future looked kind of grim for a little bit. Uh, we didn't get a lead for about two months, but I would say the last two months here have been the busiest we've ever been. We've had like a new lead every day, tons of interesting companies that want to work with us. And uh, yeah, it's been exciting the last couple months. So I think that's kind of what I'm most excited about is we've just been challenging ourselves to try to grow our team and um, fix our operations so that we can scale. Did you analyze why did you not get any leads during that time? And I'm, I'm guessing that was quite exceptional in your case. Yeah, we've never had a period since we started the agency that we went a full two month period without getting a new lead. Uh, so that was very abnormal for us. I think when we were going through it, we were trying to analyze and it sounded like just there was a lot of uncertainty. So uh, business kind of stopped everyone, like the markets went down. I think everyone was just kind of uncertain what the, the future was going to bring. And so I don't think people were making new investment decisions. And I think coming out of that period, like May and June, as people started to just kind of adapt to this new normal, I think then people realize they still need to invest in their business. They still need to grow. And so I think kind of business went back to business as usual. So are you the new Amazon in a way? Amazon has been getting so much new business because of, of this new situation. So everybody is coming online. Everybody wants to do digital. Every marketing or sales is basically just like digital nowadays. So you're hitting gold, are you? Uh, I wouldn't say we're Amazon, but I, I do think... I don't, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. I do think services businesses will benefit in the future, uh, especially if the economy continues to go down. I think what we're going to see is a period of layoffs. And I guess we already kind of went through that here in the U.S. Uh, right when COVID hit. And I think what happens is people try to cut their overhead in-house. Then they go through this period where they still need work done. And then it's less risky for them to hire agencies or freelancers or contractors than it is to bring people on full time. Uh, so I do think that maybe over the next few years, uh, service businesses should benefit if the economy keeps struggling a little bit. Can you explain a bit uh, for the audience who are not so familiar with what you're doing? You know, what's your model? How do you work? And what, what are your typical uh, customers? Sure. Um, Yeah, we started the business in 2017. It's a content marketing agency. Uh, the differentiator in our agency compared to, the, to most agencies is that we um, basically do every part of content marketing from conducting user research and customer research at the beginning of an engagement to figure out who the customers are that we should target and what their pain points are. Uh, then we come up with the entire strategy for how we're going to get in front of them, what content we should write. Uh, we produce the articles. Another differentiator there is that most people just hire freelance journalists 
or sorry, freelance writers and expect them to be experts on the subject matter that they're writing about. Um, what we do instead is uh, our writers act like journalists to produce marketing content. So we typically interview people inside of the company to get their expertise on whatever we're writing about and then turn those interviews into uh, full articles on the subject. Uh, then we drive traffic to the articles that we publish uh, through both paid channels and SEO. And lastly, we measure conversions, which is abnormal, I would say, for most content marketing agencies. I think most content marketing agencies are measured by output. Uh, so the number of articles that they produce per month, or it's measured by just traffic increases. Um, and we knew that historically because I had run marketing for two different companies previously and had tried to hire agencies to help me execute on what I needed on the content marketing side. Uh, and when it came down to questions around what results that they would drive, most of them didn't have great answers for that. Most of them just said, no, 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 we don't measure results. We just either produce these articles per month and over time you should see traffic increase. Um, and, and there wasn't really a process around measuring the results or even figuring out how to drive traffic. So when we started our agency, that was something that we wanted to fix was just having um, our goals aligned to the same goals that a company would want. You were pretty much the first ones to do that and you were quite uh, transparent and ambitious with your goals as well. Do, do you want to maybe explain a bit the, the, you know, the thought process? Why did you select that approach from the beginning Obviously, you were done, doing a bit of these things already, you know, with other companies. So you were not testing the first time, but but still, it's quite bold to say that you know you, you started from zero, and then then you know these are my goals, and this is how we do it. Observe and learn. Yeah, I think when well, to fast forward two years or eighteen months, sorry, to when we started the agency, when we decided that we wanted to do the agency as as the business model the question became how do we how do we show the results that we're going to drive for the companies and then how do we keep clients and i think when you think about answering both of those questions it kind of led us to we have to be really good at measuring um, the results that we're driving so we have to actually be able to measure all the way through conversions so that we can like prove the roi of of the business and um, how do we keep them? Same thing. I think we just, we had to be better than any other agency in terms of executing on content marketing and showing the value of our service. And so, um, yeah, I don't know why it's abnormal for other agencies to really focus on the results portion. I think it's really just because it's difficult to execute on content marketing is a number of different parts that you have to get right and a number of different skill sets. If you think about it, you have to you have to be really good at writing, you have to be good at strategy, you have to be good at driving traffic to articles and measuring conversions. It's, it's both like right brain and left brain and it's also um, multiple people who are typically responsible for this. So inside of an organization, if you're trying to, trying to build this in-house, you would need someone who leads the strategy and who can come up with the topics and the right topics. Then you need a team of writers. Uh, and then you probably need someone who's focused on 
um, driving traffic to the articles and there's probably another person that's responsible for converting them. So yeah, it's typically a lot of different roles and a lot of different skill sets. And so I think it, it's just a hard problem to solve for, to be honest. And it took us a long period of time to even get the process right for ourselves. Like we're talking a series of years and testing different um, people and different operational structures. And um, yeah, I think in the last couple years, we, we finally figured out how to execute on it. So it's not an easy problem to solve, I guess, is, is the short answer. Can you scale the model? I mean that you started pretty much by yourself and, and with your business partner and you were doing you know, almost everything while there was no one else to help you. So you needed to do those things. Uh, now you have more people there. So you, you're starting to have more specialized uh, stuff and, and you know help there. So is this a scalable model? Because like you mentioned somewhere that uh, this is more art than science. So it's, it's not just like you figure out the playbook and then you just uh, you know, repeat, rinse and repeat. You need to constantly learn and adjust and, and do a lot of things. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think we're still figuring that out. I mean, we've scaled to, I think we have somewhere like 14 clients now. Um, that, a year ago, that seemed impossible for us. Um, two years ago, it, it definitely seemed impossible. We had a completely different operational structure and we had a bottleneck in in our organizational structure that didn't allow us to scale. And so I think now the way that we designed our agency, it is a kind of like a modular system and it's very flat. And I think that is the structure that will allow us to scale. I think the issue that we had before was we tried to have a centralized editor. And so one person who would edit um, all of the different accounts and it basically created a massive bottleneck in the company where if this person left, there would be problems. If this person was behind, there would be problems. And so what we tried to do is basically empower different people in the company from writers and our content strategists to take on more of that responsibility and absorb that one role into each of theirs. So now with the current structure that we have, I do think that it'll allow us to scale to double, triple, quadruple the amount of clients if, if we so choose that we want to continue to grow like that. Can you tell something about your corporate culture, you know, how you've been structuring the company and, and you know, how can, can you also, are you completely remote also at, at this point? Yeah. So a, a lot of the way that we designed the company was one, to do things opposite of what I hated inside of other companies and, and two, to kind of satisfy a, somewhat of a lifestyle business. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, I had a lot of negative experiences prior in my career where um, I just, I don't know, you feel like you're at work and you're not really that productive, but you're forced to be there eight hours a day. Um, going into a physical co-location was tough. I had bosses that were micromanagers. And so when we started this business, we kind of just wanted to do things the opposite. So we have a fully remote business. Um, no one, there's no clocking in and clocking out. Basically everyone just does their work on their own time. Um, something that I've learned throughout my personal career is some people are morning people, some people are night people, some people get creative energy at different parts of the day. And so it doesn't really make sense to force people to all work the same way when 
everyone has different working habits that work for them. And so we kind of brought that thinking to this company and try to make things very um, out, uh, outcome oriented. And so basically everyone knows that they have certain tasks that they need to accomplish and certain goals that they're trying to achieve. And they can kind of do those on their own time um, and, and whatever way that works best for them. Uh, another thing that's different is instead of um, fixed salaries and, and getting, let's say, a percentage bonus every single year, um, everyone can make kind of as much money as they want um, by taking on more and more work. And so they're kind of incentivized to um, either optimize their life for money if they cho so choose or their lifestyle. So we have people that just run one account and they have other side projects on the side and other things that they want to invest their time in or they have a family. And so they only want work to be a certain portion of their life. And we have other people that want to make a ton of money and want to take on a number of accounts and basically their salary can kind of scale infinitely as they figure out how to take more of those on. And that basically works because it's uh, results orientated. It doesn't matter how much basically you put in hours. It's just that, you know, you, you reach the results. So exactly. if you're really good at it, then you know exactly how to serve the trend now, what's really working. And you're in the top of your game. You can make a lot of money. Yep, correct. Yeah, so it was all about figuring out the right incentives, really. I think at the end of the day is, is what's going to incentivize people to produce their best work, what's going to incentivize people to stay with us a long time. Um, another thing that I realized throughout my career is, is just the second you leave someone, or sorry, you lose someone in, in the company, you're losing years worth of knowledge, even though if, if that person's only working on some role that may seem somewhat insignificant to the company, there's their whole learning experience that they had to go through to figure out how to do their job well. And the second you lose them, even if you can find someone that has the exact same skill set on paper, they're probably not going to be as effective as the person before. And so Davish and I have really tried to focus on how can we keep people long term? How can we create a work environment that allows people to continue to challenge themselves and grow? Um, because every time I've left a, a job previously, it has always been from when I've stopped learning something new. And so the more we can help people either expand um, their skill set or learn something new, I think the longer we'll keep them. And the more we can challenge our people, the longer we'll keep them. And then the more that we can create a great working environment that's low stress, uh, I think the longer we can keep people. So I think the, the focus for us is really finding great talent that are motivated and have potential and trying to incentivize them to stay um, as long as they want for us. And so I think that's kind of why there's a different mindset around um, people having side projects, people even working for other people while they work with us. I, I don't really care what people do on the side or what other hobbies or motivations they have. Um, as long as their work get, gets done, it's to the best of their abilities. They're enjoying what they're doing. Um, I, I think it's kind of a, a different mindset than most companies have, but I also think it's important for kind of this next transition of the way people work uh, that I, I think is coming in the near future here. Could you give some examples, you know, like case examples, because there might be someone in the audience still 
bit wondering what do you actually do and you know why it's significant and, and you know who, who you know what are the you know the actual exciting things maybe you can explain something from your own experience you know when you were starting the company yourself or maybe there's some customer case you would just run through a bit so we can get a bit of more in-depth understanding the, the, the concept sure yeah so what is content marketing essentially what our agency does is we try to acquire new customers by figuring out what people would be searching for online that would lead them to a solution like the product or service that we're doing marketing on them half of So an example of that is uh, there's a concussion treatment center based out of Provo, Utah. They have a really unique way of treating people that have something called post-concussion syndrome. Uh, that means that someone has typically had multiple concussions uh, in their life and they're suffering from a number of different symptoms from like loss of focus to constant headaches to depression. There's all these um larger symptoms that come from getting um, post-concussion syndrome, they have a unique way of doing treatment where they basically take it, an fMRI at the beginning of their treatment to basically scan the brain and see where the problem areas are. And then they do a series of uh, exercises over a week period. And at the end of the week, they do another fMRI and they can see massive Uh, improvement in a lot of their patients. I, I think 75% of the people who've had chronic illnesses for 10, 20, 30 years uh, improve after their treatment. So it's kind of on the cutting edge of research. And so they came to us to try to help them uh, generate new leads for their business. And so what we did is we flew out to Provo, Utah. Uh, we met with a bunch of their doctors, tried to figure out what their competitive advantage is, what patients would be searching for if they were to try to find treatment for concussions. Uh, and then we produce all their articles. So we figured out what are the keywords that we should go after that would lead someone to find treatment like this. Uh, so some, some examples of that would be um, concussion clinics in the US. Um, if someone was searching for that, I think we ranked number one. Multiple concussions, if you search for that keyword, I think they're either in the top three spots, something like that. We rank for post-concussion syndrome, concussion treatment, all these different keywords that indicate someone is looking for a solution like this concussion treatment center. Um, then before we publish the articles, we interviewed their doctors to get all their expertise because, again, they do this research a lot. They work with a lot of these patients. Therefore, they have a lot of the subject matter expertise that is more specific than we would get interviewing other doctors that don't have the specialty Uh, we publish it for them, and then we drove traffic through um, SEO and also paid. So we advertised their articles on Facebook, uh, and we built links to their articles. And I believe over the last year, we've been working with them for 13 or 14 months. Uh, I think we just crossed 83,000 uh, visitors for them on their site last month that read it on a monthly basis now, all the content that we produce. And then... Uh, in terms of conversions, I believe we make up something about 40% of their total conversion volume on a monthly basis is attributed to us. Can you put that into some kind of significance if that's not uh, sort of classified data that, you know, before you started, what was the level, level and, and how much of the revenues and sales is done via, via you and, and the, the ways you do it? 
So before most of their business came through referrals. So patients that came in had a positive experience and either told their doctor uh, or told a friend who had a similar symptom uh, about this treatment. And then they would get clients that way. So it wasn't super predictable in terms of new business. Now, yeah, 40% of their total volume or more, it, it might even be now comes through their website. And so it was building a completely new channel for them that they didn't have that's a lot more predictable. So now they're getting 80,000 people on their website per month that uh, are interested in concussions or potentially have some of these problems that they solve for. And so it, it now basically gave them enough business to open, I think they have two new centers that are opening up. So we maxed out the volume in their existing uh, in-person location. And now they're building, I believe, a new one in Texas uh, because uh, they have this massive lead volume that they didn't have before. And then I also think that they have a local treatment center uh, in, in Utah that they're building uh, for excess patients as well. How much time does all this take uh, from their side to get those new leads? Yeah, it's very minimal. So that that's the value of the service. So the way that most people do this in-house is they would either um, put this work on an employee and say, hey, I'd love for each of you to write an article on this topic. The problem with that is they also have their other job to do, and many of them might not be writers. So all that we require from the company in-house is about an hour long interview per article. We do three articles per month and that pretty much gets us uh, the results that we need. So that's three hours from their team and then we kind of take care of all the work from there in terms of doing the writing, um, doing the editing and then it basically uh, on there and they can review the article before it's published and then we take care of everything from there. And we just have a monthly call kind of reporting on where things are at and allowing the company to ask questions to us as well. But that's pretty much all it requires on their end. Three articles a month, that doesn't sound too much. You know, usually blog posts, you could you know, write them once a day or something. So what's the, what's the story behind that? Yeah, I think most people focus on volume and not enough people focus on the quality. Um, and that's the reason why we only do three a month. So we've been able to outperform almost any company who's had the volume-based play previously uh, with just three articles a month because of the process that I that I explained. So we're doing the research to figure out what uh, articles that you should write. Most companies don't spend that much time coming up with what topics to write. Uh, typically, the way it's done internally is they say someone someone in the company says, oh, I think we should write a blog post on this. And then people do it and there's really no strategy around it. So every single blog post that we create is super strategic and serves a purpose. And we prioritize basically a high intent article. So something that we think would drive a conversion over the volume of a keyword that we're going after or any other kind of metric. Uh, so that allows us to get results faster. Uh, and then the work that goes into writing each article is way more robust than most people would do. So again, we're interviewing a subject matter expert in the company, writing on their behalf, and then spending a lot of time editing. So it's not really scalable for us to produce 10 articles a month using that process because it requires a lot of time in terms of interviewing, coming up with the questions for the interview, doing all the editing on the back end. And so 
we we just believe the better process is to be really strategic in the topics that you write about and then just write way better articles so our our quality bar is is this the best article on the subject in the search results if yes we'll publish it and i think taking that mindset over just trying to optimize for volume is what gets us the results over a lot of the other approaches how long can those articles bring traffic in average yeah i mean if, if they're ranking for an seo keyword like many of ours do um basically until someone outranks them uh, and beats the article. So it can be a period of years. And I think that's the value of doing content marketing as opposed to some of the other channels like paid. Uh, just because once you're able to get the the article to rank for the respective keyword, the cost comes down over time. So you're you're investing up something in something up front, but it's a long-term investment. And once you start getting the traffic, it compounds over time as opposed to a channel like paid where you get results faster, but results diminish over time because costs go up and there's more competition. So it's like a long-term investment and and obviously things will change, but if you focus on the core deliverables and your your value proposition, it should be almost like an evergreen. Correct. Yep. Can you explain what's the process to figure out who is the best customer? <laughs> Yeah, that that's a it's a good process. So what we do is we interview people inside of the company who have direct interactions with the customer. So when we would kick off a new client, we want to talk to the sales team, we want to talk to the customer success team, uh, we want to talk to the CEO and and the founders to understand why they created the business and we ask a series of questions. And questions for example are Um, who are the other competitors in the, the the space? What is your competitive advantage? Why do customers buy? Um, tell me the last like three sales calls that you had were that were positive, and what were uh, the customers? Wh- what were some of the questions or pain points that they had? And basically, what we're trying to do is from all the different stakeholders who have interactions with the customers who typically don't get together and hash this stuff out. We're trying to look for similarities and patterns in the responses in terms of two things. We're trying to figure out who the customer is. So what is the title of this person or what is the, just kind of like the persona? So is is it more male than female often? If it's a B2C business, do these people have certain characteristics? If it's a B2B business, what titles are the people in the company? Who are the different stakeholders involved in the decisions? And then what we want to really figure out is uh, why they buy. So what are their pain points? What are the challenges? What are their questions uh, that would lead them to a solution or a product like the one that you're selling? Uh, and again, we're just looking for patterns in the responses. And then we're backing into, okay, based on all this information, what is uh, what are the keywords that we should go after? What are the topics that we should go after? And then we basically come up with a set of hypotheses in terms of the various topics that we should go after. And so there's a mix of different types of keywords, different types of pain points, different types of articles that we're creating. And then we basically just produce them and wait to see the data to adjust from there and see what works and then double down on the things that do uh, work and try to scale those up. 
that sounds like a heavy duty process, you know, even those questions, you know, uh, what are you doing where you're really good at? And oftentimes I could imagine they are not so straightforward and easy answers to these questions. It's, it's not, and we're, it's both qualitative and quantitative. So even before we do these interviews in person, we're going into their CRM or their customer data and trying to sort by customer type, like certain people who have purchased multiple times versus those who haven't. Um, if it's a, a SaaS product, different plan types. Uh, and we're organizing things like that. And then we're also asking pointed questions at the different segments. So for example, we might run through these questions for, if it was a SaaS product, the people who buy the smaller plans versus the people who buy the larger plans. What's the difference in who the buyer is and what their challenges are so that we can target the best customers for the business? We also might look at things through the lens of um, which customers uh, have the highest um, like customer value which customers have the lowest support headaches, so they don't take a ton of co uh, company resources, which uh, are the most profitable. And so we look at it through those lenses as well. And then we ask the, the open-ended questions to try to get this qualitative feedback because that's what's really important for us to be able to come up with the right ideas to go after for these companies. Sounds like that you would be excellent to figure out also for startup companies who don't know, you know, yet, you know, who their customer are. And they're just basically putting the MVP together that, you know, bring you in and, you know, we, we figure it out together. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds fun, but we actually don't work with startups anymore. Um, that was something that we, <laughs> we learned the hard way. Uh, that's a huge, that's a huge challenge for the company to figure out. And I almost think that the company needs to go through that process themselves. And once they figure out who their company is or who their customer is and they validate what they want to sell, then it makes sense to bring us in to scale that. So one of the requirements that we have to work with anyone is that they need to have a proven uh, cold sales channel because if they've done that, they've already validated that they can sell to a customer that doesn't know them. Oftentimes companies make this mistake where they've grown off of referrals uh, or their network, and then they're trying to scale this, well, they haven't proven that they can sell that to people that don't know them before. And so oftentimes that's where companies make mistakes is what worked for the a warm introduction or uh, someone in their network doesn't necessarily work for someone that knows nothing about you. And so oftentimes the positioning of the company, of the product or the service or the messaging is way off uh, when you've only sold through uh, warm channels. And so we make sure that we check for if, if a company has sold through cold channels before. And if they have, then it tells us that their website is already likely to convert if we're just able to drive the right people to them and explain uh, the right, uh, basically educate the customer. And so yeah, now now I, I think before February, we took on a lot of those earlier companies and just realized it's too difficult. And even if we're able to drive the right people to the website and basically theoretically everything should work, it doesn't because oftentimes their website hasn't been proven to uh, convert. So basically the problem could be that uh, there's not real product market fit correct even though you can do your job the, the company hasn't done this so the value proposition is not there so people are not buying exactly 
when you have already written the articles, you have already figured out who are the best customers. Where do you go to find those people, the audience online? How does that work? Yeah, so we think of things in two different ways. Uh, one is short-term promotion. And so it's basically how can we get the articles in front of these people right away? Uh, because the long-term promotion, the second thing that we do is SEO. And, and what most agencies do there is they just kind of publish and sit, away, sit around and wait for Google to rank the articles. But that, the problem is as an agency that could take a period of six months, a year or multiple years. And so again, if we're focused on keeping clients, we need to be able to drive traffic and results immediately. And so the, the short-term stuff that we do is mainly around paid now. Uh, historically, it was something that we coined called community content promotion, where basically the concept is someone has already done work previously to build a community around the customers that you're trying to get in front of. And so to shortcut that, instead of trying to build our own audience from scratch, which could take a long time, let's just find these existing communities that already exist of the target customer and share the content in those places. And so some examples of that would be, there's subreddits that are probably related to the industry or the target audience that you're going after. Uh, there's Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups, there's Quora threads, there's email newsletters that already have the target audience that you want on them. And so what we were doing in the beginning of our agency is we were just finding what these different resources were and we were sharing the articles in those places that worked really, really well for when we had three or five clients, uh, when we started getting to eight, nine, 10, um, then it, it started to break down. And so what we did instead was try to figure out how can we replicate the same process, uh, in a more scalable way. And so we, we ended up testing paid advertising. Uh, specifically now we do paid advertising on Facebook and we're also testing Twitter. And on Facebook, what we do is we take that information from the user research and then we figure out what cold audiences should we target. So based on behavioral and interest targeting, uh, who are the audiences that we should go after and we create ads to go after those. Then we do lookalike audiences as well. So we take um, maybe a page on the website that contains high value users, such as a thank you page after someone's filled out a, a form or a, a demo request. And we advertise to people that look alike the same users that have already visited your website. And then we also do straight retargeting. And those three ways get us in front of the right people. And then we also do the same thing on Twitter as well. And so we might, on Twitter, you have the ability to advertise to accounts that look like certain people. And so you could take essentially your competitors and create a lookalike off of those and try to get in front of similar customers as your competitors have. And basically all we do is share the articles. And since they're all educational and value add and, and should be helpful to their customer, uh, typically, when someone sees us come across their feed, it is relevant to them. They come in and um, sometimes convert that way. So that that's typically the way that we're driving traffic and, and getting in front of the, the company's target customers. And then the longer term stuff on the SEO side, um, again, it's, it's figuring out the right keywords that have this buying intent 
And then uh, we do active link building where uh, we have a link building contracting agency that we've worked with almost since the beginning of the business. And what they do is they write guest posts on sites in the industry uh, with a link back to the post that we're trying to build a link to. And we're strategically building links to the articles that we want to move up in, in the rankings. And so it's a combination of both the, the paid, the short-term stuff, and the long-term stuff uh, that gets us results over time. So typically in the beginning of an engagement, you would see more of the traffic come from the paid channels and the short-term stuff. And then over the long-term, SEO should really start taking a majority of the traffic. Why does it take so long time with the CEO uh, to you know kick in like six months? Uh, and now you sort of revealed the other component. It's just not like you post the article with uh, you know optimized keywording. You need to build the inbound links as well. So that obviously takes time as well. Could it happen fast, or is it like the thumb of the rule that it's always like six months to twelve months, and then you start to see something happening? Because that's quite risky. From the customer's perspective, you, you you know you do something and then you just wait for six months and oh it didn't work well you know in twelve months we see. <laughs> yeah, no, that I mean that's why we combine the short term and the long term because for companies that are earlier on it takes much longer. So there's a ton of different factors that weigh into whether something will rank. So for example, how long the site has been in existence, what the domain authority is, how many backlinks it has to the site. Um, is is the content all on the same topic or not? And there's like, I think hundreds of different ranking factors that play into this. And and so, yeah, it, it just takes a lot of time. And so a, a site that has been around a, a long time and that has published good content, it typically we do see uh, faster results coming from SEO. And so there have been sites that we've worked on that have a domain authority of, let's say, 70 to 90, which is pretty high. Um, and those sites, we can publish an article that we think is better than anything else that we're going after and have it rank within the first month. And you can start to see SEO results in, let's say, the first two or three months from that. And it continues to increase over time. Other clients we've had where it takes six months to a year to start seeing uh, multiple results on the first page where uh, traffic really starts to compound. So it really just depends on the business and the industry. Um, for example, for our own business, we're competing against every other marketer. And so it's a lot harder to get your content to rank because there's so much content being created in the marketing industry And you're competing against almost every other marketer. Whereas something like this concussion treatment center that I gave an example of, there's very few good marketers producing content for businesses like that. And so there's much more of a wide open opportunity for the businesses that don't really have a ton of great marketers in the industry. What do you think of YouTube? People are doing a lot of videos That's also the way to learn a lot of things. If you want to, you know, get some new skills, you go there and you type it in. Is that something we should be also focusing in the future? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think video will continue to get bigger and bigger. I mean, the, the funny thing is that people since basically YouTube has existed say that video is the next big thing. 
you should stop producing content. I, I don't view it as that way. I don't think it's a zero sum game where one is going to completely take over the other. I think they serve different purposes. And the way that I view it is that you should just do whatever you're best at. Uh, so if someone in the company is very skilled at video or they're very skilled at podcasting, sure, then that might be the right medium for you to distribute your content to the audience that you're going after. If you have someone that's good at writing or you want to compete that way, I think that's also a great way. I think it's less about the tactic or the channel and it's more about figuring out what the right message is and what you have unique to say and what's compelling and then figuring out the, the right way to get it in front of the customer. And that could be through video, it could be through audio or it could be written. And I don't think that one is superior over the other. I do think that written content has somewhat of an advantage because search is so prevalent online and people use Google to, to find information. And you could make the same argument for YouTube as well, that if you created a, a video on a specific topic, again, people can find that through search. Whereas a podcast, there isn't that infrastructure built yet to where you can really search for information with audio. And so I tend to lean towards written and video, and we're just now starting to experiment with video. Um, but I, it's not something where I would say our business is at risk because we're not doing video. I think there's always going to be uh, a demand for written information. And video is just another channel that we could explore if we wanted to accelerate the results or just expand our audience uh, through a different channel. Let's go back a bit in time. Okay. You were in high school. Yeah. And you were not performing too well. That's something you already have written in your articles. And what happened then? You became passionate and you found your, I wouldn't say purpose, but you, you found a way forward and, and you started to excel. Yeah, I think... In middle school and high school, I was always kind of thinking about the future, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of explored doing architecture, getting into real estate. Uh, my dad was in real estate at the time, so I thought I might want to explore that. And then, I don't know, I was just taking a bunch of classes I had no passion for. I took like physics and biology and all, all these sciences, and I I don't know, I, I didn't really resonate with me, and I didn't do too well in a lot of them. Uh, and then I... I had taken a marketing class in my junior year and I don't know, just sitting in that class combined with the teacher, I think um, I just, it just kind of clicked for me and I realized that that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and there was actually this movie. I don't know if you've seen it. What women want as funny as it is that movie. Also, I think I watched it maybe in that marketing class, but what's fascinating about it is Mel Gibson uh, is he works for this advertising agency and he gets the, the Nike account and he, he gets the Nike women's account and he needs to come up with an advertising campaign that will uh, propel Nike as the leader for, for women's shoes. And so the whole movie is about basically him doing customer research. So he has to try to figure out <laughs> what, what women want uh, to basically sell this shoe to them. And that whole process of him just going through that exploration and trying to figure out what people wanted and what propelled them to buying, something in that movie resonated with me where I just, I kind of realized that's what I would really like to do is 
I would want to have a product that I think people really like or a service people really like and try to figure out what motivates them to buy. Uh, I don't know what it is about that. I think it's just a big problem solving challenge that's not easy. And I think that's what excites me about it. But yeah, that class and that movie combined is, is kind of put me from this period where I didn't do too well in school. I didn't really get bad grades, but I think I had like a three point something average, like low threes. Uh, and then when I figured out I wanted to do marketing, I got a 4.0 the rest of my uh, high school. Uh, main reason was because with the grades that I had, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get into a really good university for marketing. Uh, I decided I wanted to go to San Diego State at that point in time, and I needed to get my grades up. And so I got a 4.0 from then on, just now having locked in exactly what I wanted to do and having a target school that I wanted to go to. And so that it just kind of motivated me to, to do better in school and, and get my grades up so that I can get a good education and then a career that I wanted. So what happened next? What were your first steps in the, in the business world? Yeah. So man, I started, so in 2011 or 2010, Maybe 2000. So you, we are still in the crisis period. The yeah, crisis, crisis period. So I had an unfortunate series of events happen uh, in my personal life. So my parents got divorced. They lost a lot of money in the Great Recession. And my junior year of college, I was kind of on my own uh, financially. Uh, and so that motivated me very quickly, just kind of realizing I had no safety net. And so My junior year in college, I started working for a friend's startup that did uh, t-shirt printing and I was running marketing for them. So trying to figure out how to get new business for them. Uh, it was a really good learning experience working in uh, an early startup like that. I think there were maybe six people that were full-time and we were selling to um, camp other campuses, so other universities, uh, Greek life. And I was responsible for doing a lot of the sales and marketing Uh, for that, one of the main ways that I drove business was reaching out to people on LinkedIn for that company. And because of that, I had spent a lot of time uh, improving my LinkedIn profile and um, <laughs> because I, I was selling through them. So I had to make myself look good on LinkedIn. And because of that chance circumstances, someone reached out to me, I think it was over summer as I was going into my senior year of college and asked me if I wanted to come interview for a job. And they said they were really impressed by my LinkedIn profile and that I should come interview for this social media role that they had open at the company. And I was like, uh, I don't really know anything about social media. It's not really what I want to do long-term, but I need a job. And the company sounded like a really good opportunity. Basically it's called Vista International and they do uh, CEO coaching. Uh, so they, they run mastermind groups with CEOs of $5 million plus companies and um, basically share learnings amongst each other. And so I thought the mission of the company was really cool. My dad had heard of it before. Uh, and so I went in and interviewed and got the job. And so I started working full time during my senior year of college. And then my grades started tanking again because I was spending a majority of my time working. I was working 40 hours a week and then trying to go to school uh, at the same time. And it just didn't really work out. But I figured at that point in time, 
you know what, like, I don't really care if my grades go down at this point, as long as I graduate, because I already have what everyone goes to university for, which is a full-time job and a career that has started. So that was kind of my thinking at the time. That's quite a neat. You were already doing the recruitment process, you know, or reverse recruitment process and, you know, finding a job for you without realizing that you, you know, looking for a job for yourself and, and then you got it and, and you sort of secured, but you were not too happy with the corporate life. Yeah, I wasn't. I had, well, one, I got hired right out of college. And so the salary that they gave me at the time right out of college, I thought was really good. Uh, and then about a year into working there, I kind of realized that I was undervalued for my work, uh, especially because I had a lot of achievements in the first year or two uh, for the company. So I had grown their blog to about 20,000 uh, visitors a month that were reading that. I had built out a, a program to get new customers for them on LinkedIn that was driving a ton of new business for them. Uh, I had also figured out an advertising channel on LinkedIn that was driving a ton of new business for them. Uh, I was doing paid advertising. So I was actually starting to expand my just social media role, which was I came in to basically manage their social media accounts, like twi their Twitter, their LinkedIn, and then had developed all these new programs inside of the company that were driving business. So at this point in time, I kind of felt like I was undervalued. Uh, and we had this, this time in the company where I actually got another offer from another company that was willing to pay me like $15,000 more than I, what I was being paid. And so I brought the offer to someone in the company. Uh, I think it was my boss at the time. And they're like, oh, and I was like, I really don't want to take this offer, but it just kind of shows that I'm undervalued. And all I want to do is get a raise to basically match this. And I want to stay at the company. And what ended up happening was They're like, okay, yes, we can take care of this. It's no problem. And they dragged it along for a year. And at the end of this process, they basically came and sat me down in a meeting and said, I have some really good news for you. We're going to give you a 5% raise, which is way better than what we give most people, 3%. And basically, you should be happy with this number. And it was the, the number that they gave me was like, $10,000 or more lower than what I had requested. And so at that point, I was just really frustrated with this corporate work environment. And uh, I ended up leaving less than six months later. And I started my first agency, um, mainly just because I was frustrated and thought I was really smart at the time and that I could start a business and I was going to be super successful. And I learned the hard way. I was quickly in over my head. And that first, your own business was like a lifestyle business in the beginning, wasn't it? You were building it basically the way you wanted to do the business. Yeah. So I actually took someone that I had hired at Vistage and we left and co-founded the company together. Uh, initially, the first service that we were offering was two other Vistage uh, coaches. And so one of the things that I developed inside of the company was a way to try to find new members. So new CEOs for these coaches to coach uh, using LinkedIn. And so inside of the company, I was only able to help a limited amount of people because I was only one person. And so we thought it would be a really good service to just offer this individually for coaches and have them pay out of pocket. 
And so the first contract that we took as the agency was Vistage. We, we, I left as employee and then I had a contract arrangement with them to continue offering part of the service. And so the mistake that I made is just having one source of revenue and that contract only lasted three to six months. And I thought it was going to continue a lot longer than it would. And in the meantime, we were going to develop other service offerings. And we just kind of took our foot off the gas pedal and got comfortable with the one client that was paying us pretty well. And we didn't end up develop, developing the new service offering or really going after new clients. We were just focusing on making sure our website looked pretty and making sure we had a cool logo and all these things that in hindsight really don't matter when you start a business. And so about six months in, revenue started drying up and I just kind of realized I wasn't as passionate about doing the service. I, I really started the business more to make money, but I really didn't care about the work that I was doing on a daily basis and I didn't really like it. And so we ended up just closing down the business, ended up, it ended up well, like we ended profitably. Uh, and then I took another job in the meantime um, and ended up getting a $20,000 salary increase from the previous job. And so this was a period of from me leaving that first job to me starting the company to getting the another job was a seven month period. So all in all, it ended up better for me. I got a better title. I got a higher salary uh, just from taking that transition in between and starting the business. And then that company that I joined, I really didn't enjoy the work that I was doing well. I mainly joined for the salary increase because I needed money at that point in time. And at that point in time, I kind of realized that what I really wanted to do was run marketing for a company. And I realized that all the best marketing was done in San Francisco and many of the startups at this point in time. And so I, I decided I wanted to move to San Francisco to run marketing in a startup. So that's what I ended up doing after that job. So it didn't work out from the beginning like you have it now. So you were also experimenting, testing, and put that, but you were already putting the groundwork in there, basically with all the steps after the high school. Yeah, the first business was really learning what not to do in terms of, in hindsight, I had a great co-founder, but we weren't good co-founders for each other. Uh, we had very similar skill sets and there wasn't, enough of a difference in our skill sets to divide and conquer. So that was one big lesson that I learned from that. Another was just to have a service that is uh, not a nice to have, but a must have. Uh, and the last thing is just you, you can never stop selling. No matter how much business you have, never take your foot off the gas pedal. And having more leads and more business than you need at any point in time gives you a lot more options than being on the flip side. And so I think a lot of those learnings um, led into a lot of the differences in the way that we run the business and have the business today. Can we elaborate a bit uh, the difference between nice to have and, and must have? Because I think this is really important key point, but it's sometimes hard, you know, to see when you're doing things that, you know, do I really have or something, you know, which is essential or is it just a feature? Yeah, I mean, even in the businesses that we go after. Um, so part of it is the segment that we target. I would say it, it distinguishes between a nice to have and a must have. So we're not 
going after companies who have never done content marketing before and need to be convinced that content marketing is a good channel for them. Uh, again, because then their mindset is, oh, this is a nice to have, but I don't really need to invest in that because I have other channels that are working for me right now. Whereas if someone is already investing in content marketing and they're committed to it and they know they're not doing it as well, um, our service becomes a must have for them because they've already committed the budget, the resources, and they know they're not getting the performance that they want. And so our service comes in and if we're able to deliver on what we say, uh, there's no reason to ever fire us. Um, and so that's kind of the difference in the way that I think about it. And then also just nuances in our service offering too. So a nice to have would be if we're producing articles for them on a monthly basis, it's easy to just say, well, I want a different vendor for these articles or I'm going to take the writing in house. It's a lot harder when we're doing every single part of the puzzle for them and we're getting results to just rip us out and replace us with something else. Because of what I said, it, it to typically execute on this well, it takes a, a number of different people to do this. And so it's not as easy as just saying, you know what, we're going to go work with another vendor because there's almost no vendors that do exactly what we do in terms of the whole process and, and measuring the results. And it's very difficult to hire someone in-house to, to replicate what we do. So I, I think of our business now as something that is indispensable to the company. If we're able to get results for them quickly and show them the value quickly, then there's almost no reason for them to ever let us go unless they wanted to build out the expertise in-house and hire their own team to try to do the same thing that we do in-house. That's, that's typically the only reason that someone would leave after a period of time unless they felt like we weren't getting results fast enough. What do you think is going to happen in the future? Uh, you started more than 10 years ago going to this direction and you were doing it successfully for, for many clients. So what's going to happen in the five, 10 years when we look into the future? Content marketing, I think it's going to continue to get harder. I think that's that's just the general trend that we've seen over the last 10 years. Uh, 10 years ago, you could pretty much write anything and just put keywords on a page and it would rank and you'd get tons of business. Now it's the opposite where there's tons of content and it's finding good content is the challenge. If you search on the search results for almost any keyword, there's just a ton of bad content that shows up. And so I think the challenge is being more strategic and and writing better content, uh, I think is going to continue to get more challenging and more competitive with time. Um, two, I think there's an opportunity in curation. I also think that there's more content than ever. Uh, there's Twitter, there's audio, there's video. I think the challenge for consumers is finding the good stuff and distinguishing the good stuff from the bad stuff. And so I think there's an opportunity around that as well uh, in the future. And, and I do think video and audio, I, I think audio needs more of some sort of platform to help discover new podcasts and um, yeah, new voices. Whereas I think video and, and written content have, have that with Google and YouTube and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that's an opportunity and maybe Spotify wins there on the audio side. I know they're, they're investing a lot more in the podcast recently. Um, but yeah, I think that's generally where I see the industry going. I just think 
written still continues to exist. It gets harder. Video, I think, will continue to take up a larger portion of market share just in terms of overall content consumption. And I think audio is still really early, and I think there's a lot of potential in it. So if there's a young Pensi now listening, a new Pensi in high school and, and sort of uh, figuring out that, you know, maybe it's time to get to the marketing. Are there some emerging new ways of doing things? Like when you started LinkedIn and, and YouTube and, you know, a lot of these channels were pretty much just starting or they were not as prominent, obviously, as they are today. What's the direction which is more like, uh, you know, new wild west? Are there any of these left or are we already sort of in uh, incumbent industries in, in tech yeah the way that i look at it i think there's always going to be new channels always like last year tiktok didn't exist and like five years ago snapchat didn't exist and 10 years ago like facebook was just starting it's like there's always going to be these new channels i think what most people don't focus enough on is the strategy and the process and so i think people don't spend enough time understanding their customers, understanding the psychology behind their buyers, uh, what motivates them, and what's the right way to position and message a product uh, to get people to buy. I think it goes back to the principles. I think people get excess, uh, obsessed with a lot of the tactics. So how am I going to advertise? How What podcast do I need to do? It's like there's all these channels and tactics, and I think people obsess over those things instead of focusing on the fundamentals. And so I think if I were to start out, I would learn a lot about psychology. I would try to understand consumer behavior. I would read traditional marketing books because I think the fundamentals of marketing in terms of doing the customer research, understanding motivations, figuring out the right way to position and message your service are the most important things. And then once you're able to do those things well, then it's just figuring out the right tactic or the right channel to get in front of the audience in in the short term. And those tactics will continually change. And so I think there's an ever-evolving opportunity to come into marketing and be an expert in one of these channels and have that be one of your specialties. Um, and I think there's always advantages to being an early mover on any new platform as well. For example, if you're advertising on Twitter right now versus five years from now, Uh, costs will be cheaper. There's less competition. Uh, and I think it's the same kind of thing that we're seeing in Facebook right now, where I think advertising is somewhat saturated and has gotten more expensive with time. And so people are looking for for new channels to kind of exploit going forward. If I'm now just starting, I have my first company and I'm thinking that I need to somehow get the message out. Should I consider content marketing? You've been just saying that it's getting harder and harder and there's so much stuff. It's, it's not good content, but there's so much of it and it will take six, 12 months to get some results. So should I just uh, wait for to get the product market fit and uh, do some regular sales or some other means and then knock on your door because this sounds so complicated? What should I do? I would say it depends on what the skill sets are of the people in the company. If, if someone in the company, such as the CEO, or there's a marketing person that can write, and then I would say it might be a channel that you should explore. If, let's say, there's a marketer in-house that has more paid experience, then I would say it's good to start there. Um, so it, it really just depends on the company. Again, I don't, think, I don't think of marketing as you need to focus in on any one channel. And if you don't do this channel, you're not going to be successful. I think 
there's plenty of companies that have never done marketing before and had a very sales heavy organization and were super successful that way. And then there's been other companies that are super successful on the marketing side, whether it is through paid advertising or content and are successful that way. And I think it's more important to play to your strengths and really figure out what are the strengths of the founders and, and how can I find a competitive advantage either in the, the channel that I approach or the way that I do marketing. Um, to give you our own example, I'll give you two examples from my career and how this played out. So uh, the first startup that I worked at in, in San Francisco uh, was a company called ThinkApps. Basically, they did software development for non-technical founders. Um, but the non-technical founders were not just solo people. It was typically uh, different startups in San Francisco that maybe needed to build a product or a dev team. And instead of having to go do that themselves, they could use us. And the two founders of our company were uh, had built a ton of products and were, te were technical co-founders and they could lead and manage development teams. And so it, it was almost like the agency that we have for content marketing now, where they took care of the whole process, but for software development. Um, so when I was looking at the landscape in terms of everyone else who was our competitor, very few excelled at educating people how to build great products. And I thought that's an opportunity because if you have a non-technical founder who knows nothing about software development and they have a need to build a product and there's not really any other software development firm that is writing really great content about how to build products again i just saw that as a competitive advantage that we could have if if we attacked that channel uh, so after testing a little bit of paid advertising that was something that i decided to build out and we grew that blog to thirty-five thousand readers in six months uh, and it ended up being the number one lead channel for the company and so I, I don't think it was because I just saw content as a channel that we should do it. I, it was more because I saw, I had the expertise of these really technical great founders inside of the company and I could build out a writing team and I've already done that before and no one else is doing this. So let's go down this road and test it. That was more of the thinking. It's not just, we should do content for the sake of doing content. Um, the second example is when we started our company, Grow and Convert. The reason I decided to start a blog was also because of those previous experiences I had at ThinkApps. I had to go through the challenge of building a blog from scratch. So we didn't have a blog built on the website before. At the previous company that I had at Vistage, we, we had already had all that infrastructure built. Same thing at Vistage, I already had a team of writers I could tap into. Here I was starting from scratch. And so when I was trying to figure out how to do this at ThinkApps, I was researching a lot of stuff online to try to find resources to help me build out a content marketing operation and trying to find case studies of other companies that had done it well so I could take ideas from them. And when I was doing that research, there wasn't a blog that really shared in-depth information or how to do content marketing well. It was a lot of high-level fluffy tactics and things that sounded interesting on the surface but when you dug into the process and how they achieved some of these things it left a lot to be desired and so when we started our blog uh, that was the difference that we wanted to bring to it we saw the gap in the market based on my own experience and and trying to accomplish this myself and then realized that 
there wasn't a resource like this out there. So when we started our blog, we wanted to be that in-depth resource that shared everything about content marketing, that shared really in-depth case study, case studies, the thinking behind it, um, how to how to manage all these different operational processes. And I think that's why when we launched our blog, it really resonated with the people that we were targeting because there truly wasn't a resource like this out there prior to us starting it. But I think, again, it all starts with understanding where the gap is in the market, what you're uniquely positioned to solve for, and then because of those two things, investing in a channel because you think you have a competitive advantage and no one else is doing this well. I think it's less about the tactic and the channel and more about finding that competitive advantage and that opportunity. You make it sound so easy, but you've been doing this for a long time. Um, so basically what he's saying is that you need to become like an authority in the business. You, you, you find your own authentic voice, which is meaningful and helping the, the customers in a, you know, essential way. And by that trust you build with people, you convert that trust into your sales leads. Yeah, I think, I think it's even simpler than that. I think everyone starts a business because they have an idea around something that they think they can do better than anyone else. It's like you might have this podcast because you think you're really good at um, having conversations with business people and extracting certain information. I started this content marketing business because I thought my way of doing content marketing was better than what I had seen most people do. So I, I think it starts with that, really understanding the why behind what you're doing and then figuring out what you do. I think if you're to think about yourself, what do I do better than anyone else? And and how can I use that skill set to get in front of the right people and to get my business out there? Um, that's what I would do. And that's why I think I, I don't suggest content is for everyone because if you're not a writer learning how to write is probably not worth your time but if you're a really great presenter you're a great speaker then video might be the right channel for you because you, you could be good in front of a camera and communicate your your message through that medium and so that's why i think it's more important about understanding the industry understanding what most people aren't doing well figuring out what you do well and then figuring out how to bring your skill set to a gap that is open in the market. What is your favorite word? Uh, probably be euphoria. What is your least favorite word? Uh, moist. I, that word is just really hard to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Yeah, for me, it's being in the ocean. I, I surf a lot. And there's something about being in the ocean that brings a calming feeling to me. I think it's just kind of humbling being in nature uh, to where you can't control everything around you and the environment you're in. And there's something about that that um, yeah puts me at ease it brings a lot of creative energy some of my best ideas have come from surfing on um, just being out there by myself and i typically like to surf by myself and it's it's just a great way for me to disconnect from everyone around me and just kind of be alone in my own thoughts 
reminds me of the great book title uh, let my people go surfing great book what turns you off uh, people that aren't intellectually curious i think so anyone who's just not yeah they're not curious they accept information for what it is and and they don't ask why um i i think maybe the reason it turns me off is because for me personally continually asking why and question why things are the way that they are is what's led me to some of my biggest breakthroughs and i think when i see someone just accepting information for what it is and really not questioning or challenging it i don't know there's something about that that turns me off what is your favorite curse word i had to do a lot of thinking about this one but i think it's wanker and it's not a us so british <laughs> yeah it's Brit- i know it's not us and that's why because we don't say it here and i just think it sounds so funny oh you found your new niece yeah exactly <laughs> What sound or noise do you love? Uh, again, going back to the ocean, I love uh, the sound of waves. What sound or noise do you hate? High-pitched voices. For whatever reason, I just can't do that. What profession other than your own would you like to attend? Yeah, so my hobby on the side for the last two or three years has been investing and, and trading. Um, and so... I think if I ever gave up marketing, that would be the career that I would go into is just investing. There's something for me that it's it's really fascinating, kind of in the same way marketing is. I think there's a lot of analogies between marketing and investing in terms of you need to really understand what's going on in the world to be a good investor. You need to be really good at problem solving and try to figure out how all these um, different things interact and and trends and betting on technology and where certain industries are going to go. And, and I've just been fascinated. I probably spend three or four hours of my day uh, researching, investing stuff, listening to videos or listening to podcasts or looking at charts. Uh, I Technical analysis is my uh, specialty within that. What profession would you not like to do? Now, it may sound weird because of what I just said, but I think finance sounds horrible to me or operations. And I know people might think finance and investing are very similar. To me, they're not. Like, I would never want to run finance inside of an organization. And to be honest, I, I don't really like operations as well. Um, I, I like having the big picture, uh, doing marketing and and not really focusing on on the process as much. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? I would choose now. I think there's never been better opportunities to start a company. I think it's easier now uh, than it's ever been. There's more access to money. There's more access to resources. Technology has made it incredibly simple to where you can start a business for almost zero, zero money. I think our total startup costs in the very beginning were like $150 just for our website and hosting. And so the fact that you can start a business now with little to no money, you can bank online, um, you have access to people all over the world through social media and the internet. I just don't think there's ever been a, a better time to start a business. And I also think there's there's more opportunities than ever with the world changing the way that it is. I think 
we're going through a massive secular transition from centralized power to decentralized power. It's going to take a long time to play out, but I think it's going to change every industry. And I think that there are more opportunities to start business if you can think through how each of these industries will change over the next 10 or 20 years and kind of get ahead of some of those changes. I think there's a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of cool new businesses that can come out of it. Any final words for the audience? Yeah, if I was to start a business, I would focus on finding something that I would be willing to do every day despite not making any money from it. And the reason that I say that is because throughout the course of a business and getting it off of the ground, you're going to come up with periods, long periods potentially, where you don't make any money doing what you're doing. And if you hate the work that you're doing on a daily basis, that's what's going to cause you to give up and fail. If if you really love the work that you're doing and you're passionate about it and you don't care, if, and you would do it regardless of if you made money or not, that's kind of what will get you through those periods of hardship as you're getting the business off the ground. And I've learned the hard way doing things just for the money and failing because of that. And then on the flip side, I learned that through doing what you love every day, the work becomes easier. You're more passionate about it. And I think taking the whole idea of money off the table is what allows you to build the right business and approach it the right way. And I think that's what will lead the business to being more sustainable over time. Thank you, Pensy, for sharing your wisdom. And, and you know, this has been very informative. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening. Have you visited my website lately? You can find full episode notes and transcripts at www.talkswithpetri.com. You can find some book recommendations, and I also write a blog about how to build your growth company and navigate in this new disruptive decade. If you like the show, please tell your friends and send me feedback. You can also follow me in Twitter or even listen to these episodes in YouTube. Till next time.